blended in with our sermon and, and our first hymn. And if you will, I'd like our prayer to be this hymn. There's a longing in our hearts, O Lord, for you to reveal yourself to us. There's a longing in our hearts for love we only find in you, our God. For justice, for freedom, for mercy, hear our prayer. We call you, we wait. Amen. All right. Is it on? Yeah, it's on. And this is what I'm going to talk about right now. So. How's everyone doing today? Nice to see so many faces returning. I didn't scare you off last time. Um, going to continue the series on Jesus of Nazareth. And it's interesting to me to kind of uh, approach this like I don't know anything. Like I've never read anything. More like a detective story. So that's kind of how I'm approaching this thing. What if you didn't know anything? What evidence do we have about Jesus, the historical person, in the scriptures themselves? We'll look more at that, um, at the scriptures themselves this week. Now, I wanted to bring up another book. Oh, I hate when it does that. Okay. Call, um, actually, the book is called Oral World and Written Word. And I, again, it's, this is another fascinating book. We kind of assume that whatever we mean by being literate is what people in the ancient world meant by being literate. That's kind of a literate assumption. And it's, it's really uh, not true. And in fact, what's true in the ancient world is still true. So unless we really think about it, uh, we don't see that our, our ideas about literacy are really kind of, in many ways, ironically illiterate. Okay, now it's also ironic that I would even raise this question since I teach writing. But I do, when I tell my students that we call it spelling for a reason, that they believe that writing was magical in the past, it means literally spelling, casting spells, making spells, uh, it's certain that we've, we've lost something about what we think writing is all about that was very alive in the time of Jesus. Historians assume that Hebrew text-based religion, that the Jews were literate. They just sort of said, well, if they're the people of the book, then they must have known how to read. Yeah. Well, we have a constitution in the United States, but has everybody read it? Can they read it? Can they understand it? Is another question. We all know that there's functionally illiterate, there's literate, basically, basic literacy, there's college level, there's high school level, there's different levels of literacy now, and there was then. It makes sense. So literacy is a continuum from unable to read and write, so thus illiterate, but that does not mean ignorant, of course. 
And in fact, I am very tired of the culture that assumes if you're not literate, you're ignorant. Most of uh, Jesus' disciples were probably pretty close to illiterate, but probably on level two, they were able to make and interpret marks and signs. Because this was basic activity that you would need to know as a business person. You need to be able to read something if you got a, a, you would get an invoice, just like you would now. It wasn't, uh, it might have been on parchment or on clay. Uh, but so a lot of, most people had some sort of functional literacy. Also, people were able to read but not write. This is still true today. There are people who can do this. This one doesn't make any sense to me because they came as a package <laughs> when I learned them. But there are people who can read and not write. That makes the most sense to me uh, when I travel abroad. I can read some things, uh, but I would have trouble generating things. So if I'm in France, I can read the signs, but if you ask me to write out French sentences, that's going to be much more difficult for me. So that kind of makes sense in that sense. Uh, Then able to read and write simple texts. It's interesting that Mark has the simplest style. It's also the first gospel. Uh, Some of the others would have been harder for ancient people to read. So maybe a wise choice on his part to keep it simple. And then able to read and write complex texts. In terms of the ancient Jews, most everyone was, was in the first three categories. Uh, mostly scribes and teachers were capable of the latter kind of literacy. So when Jesus talks about the scribes, this is the literate caste. This is the literati of his time. These are the people who could create text, read them, and they were the interpreters of text. So they were kind of equivalent to lawyers in many ways. If there were questions about a text... That's another thing, though, that we assume that they did was had a lot of questions about text, but they really didn't the way we do now. We'll see. Uh, and weirdly enough, as Nidich, uh, Nidich uh, points out, we know really almost nothing about how they learned to read in the Jewish context. But we do have records that writing uh, uh, fir- at first was pictographic, of course, and uh, mostly used in transactions of animals, business, and then later adopted to other more complicated texts. I think everyone knows that. Okay, what Nidish sets up, though, is very interesting. She said there are signs that a culture is mostly oral, and there are signs that it's mostly literate. It's interesting to me that they're both still here. And I think I hadn't really thought as much about it until I read her book. So, the signs of an oral culture, texts are seen as magical, powerful, symbolic, ritualistic, and incantational. To be able to read or to be able to create text was seen as a magical power. And you see that also in the Bible in, in some things. Uh, once something's written, it will come to pass. It's, it's incantational. The prophets... Uh, sometimes we'll put things in writing, and therefore it will come to pass. Signs of a literate culture. This is the one we live in predominantly. Writing conveys information, data. I hate this word data. All of a sudden it's the word for everything, right? On your phone, what do you get? Data. What is that? I don't know. Is it information? That means everything is information. So the picture of your Aunt Margaret is information. It's really a dumbing down of what writing could be or is. 
Um, but that's the world we live in. A literate culture assumes that we write to preserve history. This isn't necessarily why an oral culture does it. The oral culture does it for incantational purposes, for magical purposes, using the uh, miraculous purposes. So the writing actually makes the change in the world. This is why we have things like write it on your heart. Yes, it makes a change in you to write something. I was thinking the other day about the difference between write something down and write something up. If you, <laughs> if you write someone up, you're actually putting them down. <laughs> There's going to be a longer talk about that. If you write something down, you're trying to look something up. So it's kind of, kind of weird that we do that. It's like burning down and burning up. What's the difference? Okay. So both are widely evidenced in all periods of Jewish and Christian history, as you see with the phylacteries on the arm and on the head, where they took it very literally that you're supposed to bind the words <laughs> on your body. But that's, you know, I, I, when I first encountered the people with the little box on their head, I thought that was kind of silly. But we also see this uh, with people tattooing, where they'll tattoo verses from the Bible on their arms or whatever, and it's supposed to have this sort of magical incantational function, right? It's supposed to remind them. So it may be a literate thing, and it's reminding them, but it seems it's more. It's something that they've written on them in order to change themselves. The words actually have effect in the world. Now, another really surprising thing that she reveals, or it's just logical, and I remember Dr. Lane, my teacher, talking about this. The ancient world, writing was kept on scrolls. So to access was clumsy and limited. Writing was kept, but rarely referenced. We have to remember that people at that time could memorize huge sections of text very quickly. And in fact, if we were living in that time, I could just turn to Dan and go, what have I said so far? And he could probably get most of it because of the way you were taught to listen. So orality did not mean what we think it means. Um, but writing was rarely referenced simply because it was so clumsy and hard to get to. We also have to remember that libraries and archives, even though there were libraries and archives, were not open to the public or accessible. So who were the, who were the only people that could go to the libraries or archives? The scraps, right? The official writing people. It's not like they're going to entrust people with these things because writing is very rare and hard to keep and you don't exactly just spread a scroll around. Texts were kept for both oral and literate reasons. So they were kept as a witness, sort of like we do now, a, a, a contract. As a symbol of the activity of the presence of the deity, such as the Ten Commandments, they, it becomes a symbol. It's not just a witness to the events, but it's a symbolic thing, and to magically shape events. That writing it somehow makes it happen. So written texts were to be read aloud and memorized. We have to remember that in the ancient world, nobody read silently. They read aloud. That's because they didn't believe it was words until it was read aloud. It's almost absurd as saying that sheet music is really music. It's not. It's music when it's played. So they thought the same way, the, that the magic is not going to work if I don't read it, if I don't speak it.
Okay, so here's the situation. And this kind of explains a lot of the way Scripture is used in uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament. You've probably already noticed, if you actually go back and look it up, that no one quotes anything exactly in the New Testament or the Old Testament. When they quote something, it's never exact. It's really paraphrased and sometimes very, very loose paraphrase. So what's happening there, first of all, well, there's a couple of things happening there. One is scripture was mostly quoted from memory. So paraphrasing is common. We've all done this, right? I'm trying to remember a verse or, or remember anything. I kind of have a gist of it. And so I'm, I say it, but it might not be exact wording. And it's not uncommon to update the wording. Sometimes if I'm quoting something that's kind of sexist, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll update it in terms of where it says man or, or something, I'll say men and women, or I'll say people. Um, but I might update it in other ways. I might update an analogy to fit the situation. <coughs> so passages were reinterpreted to fit the times. This was common in the ancient world that a passage could mean something at one time, it could mean something else in another time. They didn't have any problem with that. We're more picky about that. In fact, people argue about that, right? Do we go by the Constitution word for word, or is it the idea, the gist? Both schools of thought existed at the time. But neither one was considered primary. And it was common for passages to be used, what we would call out of context, Sometimes when we read the quotations in the New Testament or the Old Testament of other things, and it's more rare in the Old Testament, you probably noticed. New Testament is based in a lot of the Old Testament, so it quotes it more. But sometimes it's, it's, it's pulled out of context, and you look back and you go, well, this is a prophecy that was for the nation of Israel, and it's being used for Jesus. They didn't have any problem with that, because they saw everything as being updated, changed with the times and that the words of God could be fulfilled in different contexts. This is another, I think, really interesting thing. In the ancient world, words were freeze frames. They, they weren't full narratives. They were expected to be read aloud and filled in by the teller. That kind of explains a little bit why the Gospel of Mark is so simple. Because they didn't have this idea that you should read the Gospel of Mark and not stray at all. That it should be kind of played out. That someone should read it aloud and, and bring it to life for the readers, right? The way ancient poems were. They didn't, they had more of a gist idea of a text. It was something, it was a freeze frame, it was, it was to place the teller, but the teller was to always tell it to the audience. In a lot of ways, that's what I'm doing today in so many ways. I'm trying to just take stuff that was said in the past, retell it in a way that makes sense to you. Whole books were organized as authoritative, but not any version. They didn't have this idea that there was one text of Mark or one text of this or one text of that. It didn't matter to them. Mark was Mark. And if there were different versions of Mark, fine. No problem. They didn't have any problem with that. We get bent out of shape about stuff like that today, don't we? This has to be the absolute authoritative text. They didn't. It's like, well, as long as the gist is there, what the heck? <laughs> I kind of like this approach. It's very, it, it, it seems scary and loose, I guess, to some people, but to me, it's kind of liberating. Like, wow, you don't have to get so bent out of shape about arguing about stuff. 
right? Yeah. Good question. I don't think the ancient people would have had as much trouble as we do with that. We feel like there's got to be this right thing. And I think they would see it as, if it fits, it fits, right? It, um, now, yeah, you can absolutely lose the meaning of something over time, and, and things actually get reversed in meaning, which is kind of weird. But that happens in all of language, that something can mean one thing. Like the word suffer in King James, right? Jesus says, suffer the children come unto me. Well, in uh, the time of Shakespeare, suffer meant to allow. It means not even close to that now. It completely switched. So again, just comes in handy, though, because I remember as a kid, I was like, was Jesus making the children suffer? <laughs> and, <they're> like <laughs> and most people couldn't explain it to me in any way, but that's not what he meant. I'm like, well, that's what he said. <laughs> I was more the school of, that's what he said. And they were more of, that's not what he meant. And actually, the word meant something different. The word let meant to prohibit in the time of Shakespeare. And that's why in tennis, when you hit the ball, they say let when it hits the net. They're not saying net. Usually they say net. They say let. That's why. So things can actually reverse over time. That's a scary thought. But for the most part, it's the gist idea. And they believe that text should be refined through oral delivery. So they wouldn't have any problem with a retelling of the story getting refined. And in fact, if you look at the Gospels, if you, if you look at uh, the Q source, and then as Mark takes the Q source and uses it, and then as Luke, and then as Matthew, and Matthew and Luke use Mark, things are happening. They're retelling it in different ways. By the time they get to John, it's quite a retelling. So written texts were meant to be read aloud, interrogated, and interpreted. Again, this seems a little surprising. You don't just go, here it is, you have to follow it. You go, here it is, let's interrogate it. Is this, uh, you know, does this make sense? Does this fit with what we know? And then interpret it. If you look at Josiah's reform, which is later in the history of Israel, this is exactly what they did. When they found what we know as Deuteronomy or parts of Deuteronomy, uh, they read it aloud first, and then they consulted an expert, a woman, a prophetess, who said, yeah, I think it's legit. <laughs> and I think she was saying the gist is legit. You know, she wasn't saying maybe word for word, but this, I think this is for real. And then they collectively interpreted it. They worked together to understand it. Okay, so we're getting the idea that the, in the ancient world, texts were treated differently and thought of differently than now. They were sort of just speech written down to them. Now let me just review what rhetoric is before I begin. Uh, the process of choosing language, recognizing and understanding the situation surrounding the communications, recognizing and addressing the needs and beliefs of the auditors. You can see that rhetoric is designed for a world like this. Recognize the importance and significance of the communicator's message, recognizing activating a positive and trustworthy image for the messenger. So the rhetor is involved in the world of the interlocutors. The interlocutors share that same world. The rhetor is interpreting the world 
to the interlocutors based on what they see. There's also a Greek concept called kairos in terms of rhetoric, the right time, the right place, the right speech, the most receptive moment. I'm sure you've had a kairotic moment in your life where you actually said the right thing at the right time to the right person with the right effect. How often does that happen? <laughs> so it's interesting that the Greeks said that the, the, role, the goal of rhetoric is to create kairos. So I'm kind of looking at Jesus' ministry kairotically. How is he using his knowledge of the world, his knowledge of his audience, in a way that makes sense to them to create this relationship, this communication between them. And it's kind of interesting because like I said last time, it's, uh, he doesn't do it directly. Okay, just a reminder of what we're doing here. Histori- we're taking an historical approach to scripture, which is based on uh, outside verification, which we did last week, on number of sources, so the more gospels that include it, the more it's considered historical. Uh, the lack of fit with tradition, the more it doesn't fit with the tradition, it, historians say it's more likely it's histor- historical, and the earlier the better. So last week we asked who was Jesus of Nazareth. We're still asking that question, but we're asking these two questions. Why did he refer to himself until his trial as the Son of Man, and how were his words and actions related to the powers of his day? And then the next weeks we'll look at his miracles, and then the early church and the leadership of James. So the overall goal is what can we learn about the historical Jesus from the period history and his use of rhetoric? How can we enhance our study, our knowledge of him and the early church? Another kind of review. Remember that Jesus is primarily a Galilean and he thinks like a Galilean and he approaches his kingship like a person from Galilee. Um, So it was a period of revolt, rebellion, claims to kingship, claims to be Messiah, most revolts against Rome came from Galilee to the point that I told you last week. If the name Galilean pretty much meant abandoned, you were pretty much already um, typed as that. The framework of Mark's gospel, the earliest gospel, is partly geographical. His ministry begins and stays nine chapters in Galilee, like I said last week. It's interesting Although he was trying to make a change, he didn't go to Jerusalem. He stayed in Galilee. Then he went across the Jordan. Now that's symbolic, right? He's going to go across the Jordan so he can cross back. And when he crosses back, where does he go? Where do the ancient Israelites go? Jericho. So he goes across and he comes back through, obviously, identifying himself as the people of Israel with the 12 tribes, right? So, I'm sorry that that's hard to read. When I wrote it, uh, it looked perfectly clear, and then I got here, and I had to change everything. I still haven't gotten it right. All right, so he goes through Jericho, and then to Jerusalem, where he's crucified. Uh, I'm sorry, that says Galilee there. Um, Mark is famous for the idea of the messianic secret. Mark 1.14, And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is hand. So it, obviously that's an important phrase for him. After the first of the four disciples, all fishermen, Jesus is engaged in teaching, preaching, and healing, and exercising demons. 
Yet, the content of Jesus' teaching is only rarely stated, and then chiefly in parables about the kingdom. So it says in Mark 4, He told them the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. I was talking to my students the other day, and I said, you know, I'm just going to let you know, I'm more of a question guy, question professor, than an answer professor. I find that if I give you answers, you don't look anymore. You just think I'm right. Or maybe you'll question me, but that's only a few students. Most students will just go, well, if he said so, there you go, right? So I tend to, anytime we seem to be ending up somewhere, I tend to just mess that up so that they can't stay there. And I find when they write, they have something to say because I've pushed them to the point that they have to try to figure out what they think. I really think Jesus is using a very similar approach. If you tell people what to think, and he even tells the disciples what the answers are, and they still don't get it. They still argue about who's the greatest disciple and all this nonsense. Um, they don't really get it. We'll talk about why, but I think he's using that kind of rhetorical technique. So if we look at some of the parables that are in Mark, Again, thinking the earlier the better. There's the sower sowing the seed. And w- does anybody know what kind of tree that is? It's a mustard tree. I don't know how many times I've heard it's like a, a mustard seed, and they just show a picture of a seed. And I'm like, I want to see the tree, because the point is the tree, not the seed. Right? And we've all marveled at that, that you know, you're holding this thing in your hand, and then there's the tree. Look how big it is. There's some guy <laughs> standing there. <laughs> I think he stood there just for that reason. We've got to see how big this tree is. All right, so Jesus gives three parables. He doesn't, uh, there is no Sermon on the Mount in Mark, interestingly enough. Um, but uh, when we, he has a, three parables that he tells in a row in this chapter, Mark 4. And all of them have to do with seeds. A farmer went out to sow a seed, right, in the different kinds of ground, that one. And then a man scatters the seed on the ground, night and day, sleeps or get up, the seed sprouts and goes, though he does not know how. I like to think about, you know, you get these in a row, okay, first it's about whether you're receptive, but the second one is about how it's out of your control, right? I throw out the seed, I don't know, it's kind of a miracle that it grows, isn't it? Yeah, I remember the first time uh, I planted a garden as an adult, and I was just kind of amazed that carrots actually came up out of the ground. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> I know farmers are pretty used to that idea, but I wasn't. I grew up in the suburbs. <laughs> this is a pretty special moment for me. And then the last one is the mustard seed, which the point is it's very small, but it gets very big. Okay, so think about that. Why are these three parables? And why they all seem to mean something related but similar. And then also one of his parables was bad news for the rich. I hope you can see that. It says, camel, needle, not to scale. <laughs> you remember the teacher came to him and he said, you know, uh, you know, obey the commandments. Jesus does that thing that I know as a teacher where you kind of test them. I want to see if you really want to know an answer, so I'm going to ask you this first question. Keep the commandments. He's like, well, I've done that since my youth. And then you hit them with the big one, Right? Okay, well then, since you've done that so well, 
sell everything and come follow me. <laughs> that goes really well, doesn't it? He walks off because he had great wealth. Hmm, reminds me of some contemporary events, but I'm moving on. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And by the way, that story that I was taught in Sunday school, no evidence. There was no gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. Rats! I thought that was such a cool idea. Were you told that story? No, it's really, he's just making a, an analogy, right? It'd be easier for you to pass through the back of that chair. I, I mean, you know, it's just a very extreme analogy. And it's common all over the Middle East. There's even a form that, uh, you know, an elephant through the eye of a needle in some of the places. Um, anyway, I also gave you a link on there that if you're really interested in like, researching all the possible answers to that, yes. And sorry that's in red, but it says, Mark 9, 1, uh, truly I tell you, someone who, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. It's interesting, Matthew same situation. The words are different. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Okay, so what Matthew does is very interesting. He highlights the fact that the kingdom of the Son of Man is the same as the kingdom of God, right? If he's the king of the kingdom. But it's interesting that Jesus never says, I'm the king of the kingdom. He talks about the kingdom, and he calls himself the son of man. It's a, it's a great way to do some seed planting, isn't it? Never say what you're talking about. <laughs> Just put it here, put it here. What does the audience have to do? Yeah, and Peter does. He crosses over it, right? And he goes, well, you're the Messiah. And he tells me, no, don't tell anybody. Because you gave them the answer. I don't want to give them the answer. I want to raise the question. If you think about what stories, what movies, what books have stuck with you, it's the ones where you went, what the heck just happened? Right? It's not the ones you went like, that was cute. They got together at the end. Isn't that nice? It's the ones that left some open ends, right? Some places where you had to keep thinking about it. And he's doing that. Sorry, I keep working on ways to make this clearer. It looks so clear and clean on my screen, but it gets up there and nothing. All right, I think it's similar to the idea of kinning in, uh, in Anglo-Saxon. I teach the history of the English language, and the Anglo-Saxon word for a king is a kinning. And a kinning, is the root word is kin, right? Ah, so the kin, C-Y-N-I-N-G. Kinning. Queen was C U E N. Queen. But Kinnig and Ken are related, there's no doubt. Right? So who is the king? The king is the people. The people are the king. It's a kinship. Yes, it's not a kingship. The king is not over the people. The king is the people. And the only way to be a proper king is to be the people themselves, to represent the people. So it's right there in the language. And I, and I think um, Matthew is pointing out a similar idea without uh, the terminological connection. All right, so Jesus undoubtedly calls himself the Son of Man. 
81 times in the Greek text of the four canonical gospels and used only in the sayings of Jesus. So he speaks to himself as the son of man. It's pretty clear who he's saying that he is. Yes. I'm saying it's a darn good method. It's a, it's a, I think I was saying that, I don't remember what I said. I mean, I don't remember the context of when I said that. Right, that part, yes. The first part. Well, I, I went further than that. No, they, they, they saw everything as interpretable. Remember, uh, I said that once the text was read out loud, the second step was to talk to an authority to see if it was legitimate. And the third step was to interpret it to be for the situation. Yeah, it's the recipients. Okay. I always go back to the Constitution, the whole idea, do the judges interpret the Constitution or do the judges keep to the letter of the Constitution? Judges take different views of that. But for the most part, we have to interpret it because things occur that, that the, the text itself can't cover. And so they were, that's the way things worked. In the sense, though, he's making that more radical in the sense that he's throwing something out there, two things out there, and then hoping that the audience will put those two things together. Okay. Son of Man appears in the Hebrew Bible over a hundred times. But it's interesting that the Hebrew Bible uses it differently. It only uses it as a generic term for a human being. Right? Like C.S. Lewis does in uh, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. The son of Adam, the son of Eve, son of man, son of woman. It's, it's used as a generic phrase. That's not how Jesus is using it. And what's really interesting, he uses it with a definite article. And people have looked, and they cannot find any evidence in the Hebrew Bible or anywhere else in the, in the ancient world that the title, the son of man, was used. It's unusual to use the definitive. It would be the indefinite son of man. So, not only is Jesus using this title, he's using it very uniquely to the point he's the only one calling himself the son of man. So that creates another mystery. What did he mean? Okay, now, I want to look briefly at some things um, the precedent, who is the Messiah in the Hebrew Bible, because um, another thing that I talk about with my students is we see what we want to see, we see what we expect to see, right, so what did the people expect? Well, people didn't have one expectation, and that's part of the problem, and that's part of the solution. In other words, he uses the title Son of Man, but nobody is thinking like he's thinking about that title. 
Okay, so the Messiah says, I will raise up a prophet. So one thing says that God will raise up a prophet. Uh, this is in Deuteronomy. Though others refer to Jesus as a prophet in Mark, he references himself only once as a prophet. He says to uh, them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. And Mark and Luke and John all repeat that. Luke and Luke, uh, it says, but what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Again, interesting rhetoric. I'm more than a prophet, but he doesn't go on. He doesn't, you know, enumerate like we would now. I'm more than a prophet for these reasons. He just says, I'm more than a prophet, figure it out. And then he also, at the end of his ministry, he says, no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. So Jesus uses the title prophet, but only a few times in very limited ways. Uh, but the early church, it was very important that Jesus was a prophet. Stephen refers to Jesus as a prophet in Acts 7.37. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet be among your people. And notice he's not exactly quoting the passage. Nobody ever does. He's paraphrasing it. The Messiah was also supposed to be a liberator, and in this case, um, the servant. The servant here in this passage, you are my servant Israel, whom I display my splendor. In the original passage, the servant is Israel. So, in a sense, when Jesus says he's the servant, he's saying that he embodies, or he's symbolic of Israel itself. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He always adds to give his life, which really isn't prepared for in any of the Old Testament passages. Another Old Testament passage uh, says that he'll be a son of David and a claimant, a royal claimant to the throne. And you can see here, lowly riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's interesting that Mark actually has him ride a colt, a horse. And uh, it's very interesting to go back and read Mark's account because he kind of goes into Jerusalem, takes a look around, and just leaves. And then in the other ones, he goes in, he cleanses the temple, all this other stuff happens. And Luke, he rides a donkey, but this verse is absent. They don't quote this verse. And Matthew, he rides on a donkey and paraphrases this verse. Like I said, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Actually, in one version, he's riding both a horse and a donkey. In John 12, the entry occurs at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So he completely puts it in a different point. He goes to Jerusalem early. None of the other accounts does he do that. He stays in Galilee. There's also the idea that the, he will be a shepherd to his flock. You can see that term here. Now, other than the Gospel of John where Jesus elaborates on being the shepherd, the word shepherd is barely used at all in the other three Gospels. Um, now, it says at the beginning that the shepherd will be from Bethlehem, and of course Matthew quotes that for the birth of Jesus, but Jesus doesn't mention that. He doesn't mention being from birth, uh, Bethlehem. I know this is absolutely tiny. Um, the times that he does mention it in Mark, he says that he had compassion on the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he says later in his ministry, uh, he predicts Peter will fall away, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But obviously, 
he refers to himself as prophet, shepherd, but not in any consistent overall way. What he does call himself is son of man. Okay, so this is, the title seems to relate to Daniel's vision. In my vision, I looked, and there was before me one like a son of man, coming in the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancients of days and was led to his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and every language of every nation, ah, all peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Okay, hang on to that thought. So, you remember the passage from last week. Who do you say that I am and what did Peter say? And you can see them going through the list. You're the prophet, you're, the, uh, you're Elijah, you're John the Baptist. He says, you're the Messiah. And he says, don't tell anybody. Okay, so why did he use the title Son of Man? Let's back up. Does it relate to Daniel's vision? Okay, one theory, and this is one that I was taught growing up, is that Jesus was perfectly emphasizing that he was a human being. Saying, you know, I'm, I'm one of you. I'm a son of man. But the thing is, he says, the son of man. But that assumes people in, in Jesus' time doubted that he was human. Nobody doubted that Jesus was human in his time. No, <laughs> the question was the other way around. Could he possibly be God? But nobody said, this guy's not human. He must be divine. Oh, no. And that wouldn't enter the mind of any conscientious Jew. That there was no idea that God could be incarnate. This is a Greek idea, but it's certainly not a Jewish idea. So the idea that God was incarnate would have been anathema to the Jews of his day. Anathema is a kind of a cool Greek word that means, like, unspeakable. The Greek version of the phrase is huios to anthropou. Normally, you wouldn't call yourself all of those things. That's son, the anthropoi. Um, it would be huios anthropoi. The employment of the definite form of the phrase, Jesus is using wholly new and unprecedented way, a title, not as an idiom. So he's not saying, I'm like you, I'm, I'm just a son of man. He's saying, I'm the son of man, figure it out. What could I possibly mean? Nobody else used that title. But does it relate? I don't know about you, but I think it's interesting to me to think about that question. To what parts of the Hebrew Bible did Jesus most identify? Isn't that an interesting question? Well, you can look. You can say, okay, what does he quote? How did he use it <coughs> in terms of his person? Okay, Ezekiel uses the title Son of Man nearly 90 times, but it always means man or human. God calls Ezekiel this kind of pet name, Son of Man, right? So when they have their conversations, he'll say, oh, Son of Man, Son of Man, this. Okay, so it doesn't seem like that's what he's saying because he says what? Now, he doesn't say Son of Man. He says... The Son of Man. It's mentioned in a couple of apocryphal books, but they're written after the New Testament, so uh, probably not it. Now, as we said, you know, Daniel says, uh, 
It was one like a son of man. Daniel was written during the reign of the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes, the king who thought he was God. So the story of Nebuchadnezzar becomes this story about kings who get too proud, right? Best way to tell the story is, of course, tell a story like it, like Nathan the prophet and the, the guy with the sheep, that the rich man took his sheep and killed him. And then uh, David says, bring this man, on. you know, he's a, he's a dead man. And, and Nathan says, what, famous, thou art the man, which is a great story by uh, Edgar Allan Poe as well. But anyway, thou art the man, and then David is completely humbled. So the idea is that if you're going to uh, speak to power, you use an analogy, a story, not directly. So he tells the story of Nebuchadnezzar and, and the price he pays for thinking that he's some kind of a god. <coughs> and Antiochus Epiphanes is the one who placed the original abomination of desolation in the temple, which was probably a statue of Zeus or something like that. And it led to the war of the Maccabees that I talked about last time. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's a double method in the sense that you're only telling part of the story hoping they'll figure it out. But if they figure it out, you could be in big trouble. So you have to always kind of keep it separate. That's something that they're figuring out over time. But he doesn't want to get killed before it's time. Thus, he doesn't go to Jerusalem. You remember when Jesus appears before the high priest, he says, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Jesus says, I am. And then he follows with, and you will see whom. Can you read it this time? Is it still too? It's bright yellow on mine. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. So he's actually referring to two different scriptures. Um, one that he quotes earlier in Mark, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will put your enemies under your feet, which is a paraphrase of, the, of this thing. And uh, you can see some, that's from Psalm 10. But also Daniel. So he's, he's telling you have to think, okay, if you're on trial, this is when you're really going to speak the truth, right? This is when you're really going to say what you need to say. And that isn't always the case. Yeah. <laughs> okay, if you know you're going to be put to death, you've got to have some good things to say as your kind of last words. And uh, you want to be clear, but he's not even clear here, is he? He says, I am those things, but you don't understand it. I'm the son of man. Yes, it's sort of like he's saying, Son of Man includes those things, but those things don't include Son of Man. So you have to understand it this way. And then he also says, and of course, it's uh, hard to read here, 
coming on the clouds of heaven. So he seems to combine his understanding of himself with the Davidic prince in the line of, of David and then also the son of man who's coming in the clouds of heaven. And he, he directly refers to himself as that son of man. Okay, so let's, let's try to pull some things together. Yes? Like he spoke it in Aramaic. There's a lot of conjecture. Mm -hmm. He would have spoken it probably in Aramaic. So Pontius Pilate probably knew Aramaic. Um, yeah, everybody was pretty much multilingual. Yeah, well, I kind of wish that the Bible would have talked about that more, but they're not worried about those kind of details. Like, um, in what language did Pilate question Jesus? He seems to be able to understand. They don't talk about a translator, so I, I don't know. That's actually kind of an interesting mystery. Okay, so Jesus' reaction to Peter, and of course, the Son of Man is a Greek translation of what he might have said in Aramaic. And in Aramaic, it's highly weird to say the Son of Man in Aramaic. Jesus' reaction to Peter's declaration at Caesarea Philippi, right? So let's, let's kind of sum up. Jesus' conception of the Son of Man is, is to take precedence over other people's assertions of his messianic identity. You don't understand that he's the Messiah or the shepherd or the prophet unless you understand the Son of Man. That's the term he wants to call himself. When he stands in the presence of his accusers, he's willing to accept the generic title of Messiah only if it's defined the way he defines it, which is more like the book of Daniel, Son of Man, coming in the clouds. It also sheds light on his motivation to cleanse the temple, the abomination of desolation. So Jesus seems to be very familiar with the whole book of Daniel and, and this idea um, of the king that's corrupt, Yep, that needs to be deposed, the, the corrupt power, the need for the cleansing of the temple, the whole background of the story. And he also updates, like I said before, they had no problem with updating, he updates Daniel. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel the prophet standing where he ought not, then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. So he's predicting that there'll be another abomination of desolation, and there was, later under the Romans. Okay, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to have to fly through this. If we look at some of the passages where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, there's one where he's predicting the end of days. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds and great power and glory. And yet at the same time, he says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. He says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. But he also says, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. So he speaks to himself kind of in third person that way. And then uh, the answer that he gives to. It's interesting. He's being judged. He's being tried. And he tells them, I am returning as judge. You will see me return as the judge of the world. 
he also says, I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And you remember the passage, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Again, I think he's also meaning something. I do think he's tying into that he, I do think he's tying a little bit into humanness, right? Because foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Um, we have to build these kind of really artificial structures. We have no furs, and <laughs> we, are, we are a little odd in that respect. Everything seems better prepared for reality than us. Um, he's coming to judge. My wor- anyone ashamed of me and me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes. So, the Son of Man is here, and the Son of Man is coming. So, all this, I'm saying, I think he's using a rhetoric of hiding in plain sight. Jesus embodies the new social order of the kingdom of God, where the poor are honored and honorable, and the rich must become poor to enter. He's the peasant king, as the book that I've been talking about, a king with no place to lay his head, a king who came to serve, not to be served, a king riding on a donkey. Despite a thousand years of written history and scripture, Jewish interpretations were varied, and for the most part, no one expected a Messiah like Jesus. So he had to choose a term that nobody else had used and embody it. Three men in his lifetime had revolted. So he knew they were all executed. He had to be careful what he said. So he recognizes the obvious danger of claiming to be king. So let's add it all up. Jesus purposely sets up two different chains of thought concerning his ministry, the Son of Man and the Kingdom of God. If he'd have called himself the Davidic King, everybody would have got that it was right together, but he didn't. So you have to think about it, and that's a pretty interesting technique. Only those who pay careful attention would see he's indirectly claiming to be the king of that kingdom. Both the king and the kingdom are not what people expected, so the message had hidden in plain sight. The Messianic secret is the most clearly evidenced in the Gospel of Mark, the earliest gospel. So in terms of his rhetoric, Jesus speaks in parables. Again, because you've got to do the work. You've got to figure it out. But the readings that I like to have my students read are the readings where it doesn't come out and say something. I have them read an essay at the beginning of a writing course that's called Loss of the Creature. The guy never talks about the word loss or creature. There you go. I like that. Because the other day I said, well, what's lost and who's the creature? And they had, they had probably five, six, seven different answers. All of them, I think, correct. So he speaks in parables. He resists the name Messiah. He refers himself as the Son of Man. And probably no one at that time understood it anymore. Or, you know, it was completely unprecedented. He relates this concept of Son of Man to the title of uh, the the book of Daniel and the Davidic kingdom. So he does at least reveal finally that it's Daniel. He's referring to the son of man in Daniel. And that he's tying that to the idea of the Davidic king. He makes mysterious references to the kingdom of God, a reversal of the present order, and he allows the idea of kingdom of God to the analogy of the seed. All right, so I think he's trying to create right time, right place, right speech, receptive moment. You speak, and if the ground is right, yes, he says in the parable, then they listen and they react. 
It's interesting, though, that later on, the disciples ask him in Mark, what did that mean? And he's like, <laughs> if you don't get it, <laughs> wow, I've had that moment as a teacher, too. He talked for an hour and then they go, well, what did that mean? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I could be having it right now. All right, so Jesus was the sower and we are the ground. Pretty obvious by now. What better analogy to use? You know I'm big on analogies than the seed. He said it three times, right? What makes the difference with the seed is the ground. When you pass the seed, you don't have any control over its reception. It just grows. It's just a miracle. And the kingdom of God is like a little bit of seed. It's going to grow into something huge. So everything he's telling them is, if you think about this long enough, it's going to be a big enough tree to put birds in. Yeah? It's kind of a cool way to put it. I'm reminded a bit of, of my college roommate who used to say to ask me every day, he'd say, isn't it great to be alive? And I'd always argue with him. <laughs> in fact, I'm giving a TED Talk. I, I, will, I keep saying I'm going to send the information to you guys if you want, if you want to comment the TED Talk on that. Or I'm mentioning him in it. But I didn't get it, right? He'd say that to me every day, and I was like, okay, listen, uh, I, just, I, I just lost my girlfriend from high school. I'm brokenhearted. I just got involved in drugs and alcohol, trying to solve the first problem by creating two more. And then I got involved in, like, this Christian cult that started telling me they, they could make all the decisions for me and got out of that. So I was pretty disillusioned, right? I didn't trust anybody, anything, not even myself. And he's telling me, isn't it great to be alive? I'm like, no, it's like a big joke. But it started soaking in because one day I was writing something, maybe about that time, and I said, you know, I'm disillusioned. Wait, that means to get out of illusion. Ah, it's a good thing. So it took me a while, but it grew into a tree, right? It hit me one day. It's raining, but I'm alive to feel it, so I can't complain, can I? You see what I'm saying? I tell my students, I said, it's not whether the glass is half full or half empty. It's the fact that there's a glass and there's a me. <laughs> that I can see the glass. That I can think about that question. That's Amazing, that's what Chris was talking about. And I think Jesus is doing the same thing. Plant this idea. Once you spin it out, it's gonna grow into this amazing thing. It's gonna be able to sustain you like a tree, right? There you go, you're gonna have mustard for the rest of your life at least. If you can't get past the metaphor. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, thank you. What's that? <laughs> no, I was trying to think of a better way to put that, but I think ground is the other way. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that's the only analogy. We're not always the ground, but uh, I would rather be the ground that produces a big tree than just the, you know. The <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>